Uh, well, that was a compliment, I think. I don't holler. I'll take that. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to holler today. Uh, I'm not going to change that pace. But we um, all have to say, we've been in the book of Exodus for a long while, and we're taking a break uh, for a little while in order to look at several of what are known as the Psalms of Ascents. And the Psalm of Ascents are basically 120 through 134 in your Bibles, and they were sung by Israelites as they made their way to Jerusalem for one of the great feast days. And so these holidays, these holidays, I just said holidays, come on now. These holidays were a God-given interruption of their normal everyday lives and were intended uh, to remind them in a very tangible way of what God had done for them. So in the spring, it would have been uh, the Feast of Passover, and then in the early summer, it was Pentecost, and then in the fall, it would have been what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And they would make their way, really it's a pilgrimage, from wherever they lived in Israel to Jerusalem, literally going up to the Temple Mount, ascending to the city of God, and thus they are called Psalms of Ascents. So this tangible practice, and it's really, when you think about it, a, a lived symbolism, it was a reminder that their lives were going somewhere, that they were moving towards God into really a better Jerusalem. And as Eugene Peterson describes well, and I'm using his, his wonderful book on these Psalms as, as one of the sources for this series, he says our calling as the people of God, as we mentioned last week, is, is both to discipleship and to pilgrimage. As he says, a disciple is a learner, but not in the academic setting of a schoolroom, rather at the work site of a craftsman. We do not acquire information about God, but skills in faith. So it's not that we don't learn things about God. We do. I know a lot of things about God. It's rather that what he intends for us is not just mere trivia, but, but knowledge of him that is personal. You know, so for example, I know a lot of things about LeBron James, but I don't know him personally. He's not my friend. He's not even an acquaintance. God, the creator God of all there is, wants us to know him, not as an acquaintance, not things about him, but know him personally. And like with any relationship, you know, discipleship is, is a daily grind. It is a life of practice and learning God and learning to walk in his ways. And it isn't static. It isn't static. As Peterson says, you know, the word pilgrim tells us we are people who spend our lives going someplace, going to God, and whose path for getting there is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And this is what we talked about last week. You know, every moment of every day, we are moving closer to the moment of our deaths when we will see God face to face. So it's not if it will happen. It's going to. It's when it will happen. Now, while it may feel like many days that we are just stuck in one place, in particular when it's hot and muggy and you don't want to get outside, you go outside for one moment, it's sunny, and then within 30 seconds you're in a downpour. No, we believe Jesus when he says he is preparing a place for us in his Father's house and that this life, no matter how it may feel in the moment, is not all there is. Discipleship and pilgrimage are fundamental. They are fundamental to being the people of God together. And as we're going to see today, it begins with repentance. So we're in Psalm 120. We're going to take the entire psalm this morning. Let me read for us. Psalm 120. 
In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree? Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's, uh, let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for us in this time, this meditation on this ancient psalm that comes from a very different context, from a very different people, and a very different practice even. Lord, it would be useful for us, your people, who have been integrated into Israel, who have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb, that, Lord, as we ascend to your holy temple, when we look upon you face to face in that coming marriage supper of the Lamb, Lord, that we would be shaped as we are moving by very practices like this one, simple, easy practices that are ordinary and the world easily forgets. Lord, may this moment, this time that we have together be useful for building us up in ways that we can't even see. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stanley Harawas once said that it used to be that Christians were pilgrims, but now we are more like tourists on a bus. Think about it. A tourist is someone who who merely is sampling uh, a destination, using it for entertainment, kind of picking and and choosing what he wants to uh, take in. So when you're a tourist, you make sure that You've documented your your little adventure with pictures and selfies, and maybe you get a t-shirt or a coffee mug, and then you you go back to your real life. And it's just like, in a lot of ways, going to Six Flags or Disney World. You go to be entertained and amused, but you don't intend to live there. You have the freedom to choose what rides you want to do or or not to do. I mean, there's, there's no rules on what you have to do. So you can sit all day if you want to, or if you want to be a madman and do all the rides or something in between, Great. You know, eat, drink, be merry. Be our guest. Enjoy yourself. The thing about being a tourist is that you don't actually have to change. You can dress the same way as you would at home. You can even eat the same food. It's why when you, you go to other countries, you can always find American fast food chains. And it's almost like you never left home. And of course, when, when those restaurants taste slightly different from home, Americans often complain about it. That's a tourist mindset. Pilgrims are different. They aren't sampling or or looking for amusement. They are moving towards a new life or a new home. They have left behind really an old way of life, an old land. They've they've burned the boats in the harbor, so to speak, and they are moving towards a new life and a whole new way of existing. You see, to be a pilgrim, it does cost you something. It does cost you something, maybe even your life. But tourists, you know, don't really lose anything. They only consume. They have new experiences, but it doesn't really change them. It's why the phrase, if you remember this one, been there, done that, is, is oddly accurate, if not cynical, you know, sort of phrase for how many people approach life just in general, including the Christian life. In comparison, you know, pilgrims are changed people before they ever start out. They, they have intentionally changed identities. And Howard point is that Christians used to think and act like pilgrims, but now 
we tend to think and act like tourists. You know, so for example, you know, I lived in St. Louis for 15 years, and I worshiped in a lot of different churches over that time. And in many of those churches, it was not unusual to see people get up and down multiple times during a service to get more coffee or to get another donut or simply to go talk to someone in the hallway or whatever. I mean, the worship service was kind of like a revolving door. And I've been in the act of preaching or or leading worship and seen, seen people, you know, check their phones and laugh and then show their phones to the next person and then they laugh and then they respond like, oh, that was a pretty good one. And then they just keep on scrolling or they have conversations during the Lord's Supper like they were just sitting in a food court or a mall. And I'm not saying you have to be stoic or, or even silent or can't go to the bathroom for it to be proper worship. You can, by the way, you should. But, you know, just think about it this way. Just to have the blessing of children in a service, for example, means it can't be stoic. There's going to be noise and all that, and that's good. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, some of the most wonderful moments of my life have come with me wearing a T-shirt in jeans while playing guitar and leading worship. And it's not that the outward matters so much to worship as it is the inward posture towards it. But it did make me wonder over the course of those years, if this is how they treat one hour a week, one hour a week that they've set aside for corporate worship, how are they treating God the rest of the time? You see, to be a Christian is not to be a tourist. We aren't sampling God or looking to be amused or entertained by him. Let's be honest. This worship service is not entertaining. I hope it's not. I hope it's different from every other kind of music and every kind of other events you have in your life. I hope when you come here, it feels uniquely and strangely different from everything else. We don't want to be tourists in this situation. You know, to be a Christian is like what what Friedrich Nietzsche, of all people, said about pursuing virtue in a life worth living. And he's right. He said it's, it's a long obedience in the same direction. You know, remember, as disciples, we aren't just accumulating interesting tidbits about God. We're learning how to walk with him. We are sitting at the feet of the master and learning to live like him. You know, being Jesus's disciple is not something you master. You don't master it in a couple of months, let alone a couple of years. It's something you learn over a lifetime and you never stop. You never arrive. You work at this relationship forever because God is that deep. He's that abiding. It's like what I tell everyone who who takes music lessons from me, and they never want to hear this, but it's true. It's going to take years to get good. I just say that up front, and most people just aren't interested in that kind of commitment. And when you hear people say, I wish I'd never quit the piano, they're basically saying, I wish I had committed myself to a long obedience to the piano. And it doesn't matter if it's learning jump shots or losing weight or becoming a novelist or being a disciple of Christ. Things of real value require a long obedience in the same direction, especially the God who made the heavens and the earth. So to be a disciple and a pilgrim, you aren't just saying yes to a new life, though you are. You're also saying no to an old one. So to quote Mencius, who was an ancient Confucian philosopher, he said, before a man can do things, there must be things he will not do. 
To be a disciple of Christ, you must say yes to Jesus and his ways and no to the world and its ways. That's what repentance is. It's a change of heart in which we turn from one master to another. And the options, as Martin Luther saw it, are to be at the feet of Jesus or to be at the feet of something else, and more than likely it will be multiple other things. It's either going to be Jesus or something else, but you know, make no mistake, something will master you. It will. There is no such thing as being your own master. That is a modern myth. Humans are always in the service of something or someone because we were created this way. We were created to serve and to worship. Now, because we still have sin in our lives, as Christians, there's always a battle for supremacy in our hearts, always. And most of the competing masters that are competing against Christ in us, they're subtle. And they appeal to our sinfulness in ways that are, are enticing. It's what makes discipleship so hard. It's, it's like this, this post I read on social media a, a while back. It said, happiness is the new rich, inner peace is the new success, health is the new wealth, kindness is the new cool. So, you know, on the one hand, I don't know anyone who doesn't want happiness. I mean, who out there is saying, nah, I just want to be unhappy all the time? No, I don't know anybody who doesn't want peace and health or to be considered cool, which means you're accepted by a lot of people. I mean, Americans perpetually spend their hard-earned money in pursuit of all these things. But on the other hand, these things make for terrible masters because you are perpetually chasing after them and never quite getting what they promise. To be a disciple and a pilgrim of Jesus means saying yes to him even when it threatens your happiness or your inner peace or your health or your affirmation by the world. It's like what we sing with on Jordan Stormy Banks. You know, it's trusting, like Job, that God really will provide a better land in due time. But we might really suffer as we wait upon him to do it. Well, that takes us to our psalm, and he begins by telling us, this is verse 1, that in his distress, he called to the Lord to deliver him. Deliver him from what? Lying lips and a deceitful tongue. This is not what I think most of us expect or, or even pray for. Deliverance from our, our circumstances or from other people or from threats outside of us? Yes. The psalmist wants deliverance from himself. He's sick of himself and his sin. He's like a man who, who desperately wants and needs a hot shower because he's filthy, but he can't get it. It's like when your shame and your embarrassment is on display and you just want to hide, but you can't. But why talk about himself in terms like these, of, of lying lips and a deceitful tongue? Well, think about it this way. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that what we say is a window into our hearts. Our words expose our true character. And as much as I wish this was not true, there's no such thing as words that don't matter. There's no take back on things we've said. And, and don't think of this like a fundamentalist or like maybe a Pharisee who only focuses on four-letter words or what have you. No, no, no. Think of this in terms of the content of what we actually say and how we say it. You know, once we open our mouths, 
Our hearts are exposed. And we we don't typically think like that because we think words are cheap, but God doesn't. It's why, for example, James spends so much time talking about the tongue. And I come back to this passage all the time, and I don't apologize for that at all. But I think we really need to hear what James says. He writes, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So his point in all that that vivid imagery is what you say is a barometer for your heart. But as other places in scripture teach, it's again, not just what you say. It's how you say it too. That's why I've, I've made no secret that I absolutely hate cable news and most things on social media. It's why I talk so often about gossip and how evil it is. You know, these things are the very opposite of godliness. Their inflammatory rhetoric is intended to deepen tribalism. They are quick to speak and slow to listen. They they don't care what kind of damage they cause, just so long as they are validated by, by advertisers' dollars or likes or retweets or reshares or whatever. And at root, while truth can be found there, in the main, it's lying lips and deceitful tongues. You know, in my own life, it's when I'm taken by surprise or when I'm frustrated or when I'm in the comfort of my own home and my guard is down. That's when my heart is exposed for what it really is. I know how to speak in public. I do. I, I know even when I'm surprised in public, I still kind of have my, my guard up and I don't just blurt out whatever I'm thinking. But when I'm unexpectedly woken up in the middle of night by one of my children or when a family member says a harsh word, when I'm tired or worn down, that is when you will see my character. And it's not that I'm not a new creation in Christ and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. I am. It's that a war is being waged in my heart and my mind. And in this life, my heart produces both blessing and curses. And you know what? As James says, it should not be this way. I'm a man who needs to be saved from my split allegiances. But the psalmist sees, and I think we've got to see it this way too, that we cannot merely point the finger at what we see out there, what we see online or on the television. We too stand condemned. We watch and interact and we mimic these things, taking on their tone and sometimes their content too. And the psalmist sees that you know, his heart is, is just as wicked and broken as what he hates. He's the problem, too, because he's prone to deceit and lying, too. And it's, you know, it's easy. It is so easy to see the lies and deceptions of other people. It is easy for me to be in this pulpit and condemn the media. I mean, it's just softballs at this point. It's easy to compare yourself against other people and find them to be the problem. But the psalmist is different. And like 
you know, Isaiah, when he comes face to face with God, he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So this man hates his sin because he has compared himself not to other people, but to God and he sees how much he's wanting. But it's not that he thinks he's worthless. You don't see that here. It's rather that he just doesn't want to be this way anymore. He wants to be clean. He wants to be godly and knows that he isn't. You know, he, he, he no longer wants a heart that has a split allegiance. And that's what it is to be the poor in spirit, as Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5. You don't think you're worthless. You're just realistic about your sin. It's like what Sam Albury recently said. He said, you know, we're not Christians because we think we're good. We're Christians because we know we're not. It's why for the disciple of Christ, humility, not overflowing encyclopedic knowledge, it's humility that is the mark of maturity. You will never choose the pilgrimage of repentance and discipleship if you don't start at the point where you don't want to live like this anymore. In fact, you cannot pursue the Christian life if you don't start here. When you don't start here, you just end up believing the lies that say things like, you know, happiness is the new rich and inner peace is the new success. And you know what? You're gonna try and bless those pursuits in Jesus's name. It happens all the time in America. And they're lies. And they gloss over the reality of the sickness of our own hearts. Well, the psalmist then asks the question, what's to be done about this? How can I get better. What's interesting, his answer is definitely not, well, you know what? I just need to be a better person. I just need to be a truth teller. If your heart is sick, you can't just decide to be better. You've got to be worked on by somebody else. And the psalmist says the only remedy for his wicked heart is a warrior's sharp arrow with glowing coals of the broom tree. Exactly what you were thinking, I know, right? This is actually a familiar picture in the Bible. You see, the warrior is God himself, and he's putting the psalmist's sinful tongue to death, even as he redeems it with fire. See, this this picture in the Bible is that God must put our sinful self to death, that he must purify us with fire. And instead of our tongues being set on fire by hell, as James talks about, God will cleanse us with his purifying Uh, fire from heaven. I mean, think back to Isaiah. When he saw God in his great throne room, how did God redeem him? By putting a burning coal to his lips. See, fire and water are often used to describe how God purifies his people and the earth. God purified the earth in Noah's day by washing away the impurity of wicked humanity, just as baptism washes us clean. God will ultimately clean this world again, but with the fire of a great craftsman who is purifying his precious treasure and removing all its impurities. It's, it's that sort of purifying fire that's, that's in view here. This man, he hates his heart, his lying lips, and he wants to be clean, and he knows only God can do it. And that's key. That's key. We're Presbyterians, so you know we're used to talking about this life saving, redemptive act being all God's work, and that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. To say anything less than that is to deny the gospel. But notice that the man wants to be clean. 
He wants to be free from his sin. He's in distress over it, and he cries out to God for it. And he knows it will be painful, like most surgeries are. But it's what he wants. And why does he want it? Because he ultimately wants God himself. You know, so often we don't want to be cleansed because we're at home in our sin. You know, we're like cats in need of a bath, so we're going to fight tooth and nail against that. We like our sin, and we don't want to give it up. And it's, let's just be honest, it's, it's fun, and it makes life more interesting, and we know how to make excuses for it. It just feels normal to us. Besides, as everyone knows, it's more pleasurable to be sick than it is to be healthy, or so advertisers would have us believe. You know, it's like the parable Jesus told in Matthew 18 about the unforgiving servant. He wanted his debt to be forgiven, but he didn't want to have to live like it. His wickedness had led him, if you remember that parable, to amass what would be in the billions of dollars in today's money. And he was at home in the sin that had amassed that debt. So much so that without a thought, even after he had been forgiven his debt, he threw his buddy into prison for owing him a couple thousand. What did he value more? Forgiveness or the comfort of his sin? I mean, what did he really want? To be clean or to have power over his neighbor? Or it's like the rich young ruler who says he wants holiness, but when Jesus says to give up everything he owns and give it to the poor and follow Jesus... He refuses. Jesus wasn't making a universal requirement for discipleship. No, he had zeroed in on that man's sin and what he loved most. And well, the man did not want to give it up. It's not that he, he struggled to give it up. You know, every Christian struggles to give up their sin. That's why we're here. No, he refused to give it up because he did not want Jesus. He loved his sin so much that he chose death over life. It's the difference between being a tourist and a pilgrim. See, a tourist won't change because he doesn't want to change. No, a tourist will, will try to use Jesus up to the point where Jesus demands change, and then the tourist will get back on the bus and head back to the airport. A pilgrim will follow the master's way, and it will most certainly cost him because it will force him to change in ways that he probably doesn't want to. And it can be very hard and very uncomfortable. It's like when my wife and I are fighting. And it's, you know, it's uncanny how often this happens on Saturdays. I know you. Your days are on Sunday mornings. I know. It's on the way to church. It's getting ready. It's getting the kids out the door. It's all the things that are happening. You finally relax. It's hitting you. Well, that day for me is Saturday. All right? It's Saturday. And I will, you know, lose my temper and say things I regret. And she has one line that usually just slays me. Some pastor you are. And it usually, when that line comes, it just enrages me and causes me to double down on my self-righteousness. But you know what? I'm on the record. She's right. My response ought to be immediately to stop shut my mouth, maybe apologize, admit that she's right, seek forgiveness, but that's usually a good hour away, maybe longer. Why? Because in that moment, I want my sin. I want my sin more than I want reconciliation. 
In those moments, I want to be a tourist to my marriage and my God, not a pilgrim. I want things my way for my self-perceived good, not the master's way for the good of my wife. This is why I think marriage is one of the best things God uses to sanctify his people and teach them holiness. That's not the only way. Every relationship you're in should be doing this for you in some way, but marriage is a pretty good one. A good marriage, you see, is not sin-free. It's not argument-free or conflict-free. I mean, far from it. If you have a good marriage, your sin gets pointed out to you a lot. You can see it, too, when your children, the product of that marriage, start acting like you do and committing the same sins you do, too. You know, if we, if we take the psalmist seriously, we don't just hate our sin once, like that one fight, and then move on. No, we don't just repent of a few simple easy things that we don't mind changing about ourselves. No, we do wholesale. We do wholesale. Repentance, you see, is a daily turning to God. It's sitting daily at the master's feet and learning his ways because we believe we are actually going somewhere. And if if you don't believe that, if you don't see that you are on a pilgrimage to that wonderful far off shore on the other side of the Jordan, you will not engage in the long obedience. Because think about it, if there's no future life with Jesus beyond the grave, why would you? The psalmist recognizes that he is a man of lying lips and a deceitful heart, but he also recognizes that the world around him is too. And he actually mourns it. He says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Well, Meshach was a far off tribe, thousands of miles away, basically in southern Russia. And the Kadar were a wandering barbaric Bedouin tribe that lived fairly near to Israel's border. And as Eugene Peterson paraphrases the verse, and I like this, he says, I live in the midst of hoodlums and wild savages. They hate peace. They want only war and violence. See, the world loves to talk about love, peace, Harmony, justice, goodness. And remember, you know, kindness is the new cool, y'all. But they do not want these things as God defines them. And because of that, the world is dead set against God. And in turn, it will be dead set against us too. It's like what C.S. Lewis once said. He says, there is but one good. That is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. So if you've you've turned your heart to the ways of God, just know that Meshach and the Kedar, they will hate you. And we should mourn that. We should not grow angry over that. We should not grow vengeful over that. We should mourn that. You know, for a lot of people, our default setting is to hate worldly people. And it's one thing to hate their sin, of course. It's quite another to hate God's image bearers. God never teaches us to hate the world, circling the wagons into a holy huddle, keeping them all out. Not at all. That would undermine the gospel. We are to love those who hate us, and our discipleship and pilgrimage with God happens in the everyday life among both believers and unbelievers, too. So discipleship is not meant for monasteries or mountaintop retreats. Discipleship happens in office buildings, in schools, in office cubicles, and tractor cabs. 
And for the psalmist, this long obedience in one direction is a break from the world. I mean, we don't want to be like them, even as the psalmist longs for God to make all things new. So we follow God in this life with all its hardship and suffering and frustrations and everything else, knowing that we will not always live in a world of violence and hatred. Things won't always be this way. You won't always be this way either. And what God wants from you is not to continue in the comfortable old ways of the world, but to walk in the new ways of the master that challenge us to our very cores. You see, God wants your heart and your mind and your feet. He wants everything. He wants all of you. And it's all because he loves you and has offered all of himself to you. So to be his disciple, to be a pilgrim, to be about the long obedience in one direction is to daily surrender to his love and his lordship that he has so freely given to us and say, here I am, Lord, I am yours. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. As we have learned through how you treated Israel, you do not break covenant. You keep faith even when your people are faithless. We thank you for that because so often we are faithless. So often we are of split allegiances. So often we are founts of both good and bad, blessing and cursing. Lord, continue to work in us, we ask. Continue to sanctify us, moving us through your spirit to walk in your ways and to love you most. And Lord, I pray for all of us because I certainly struggle with this myself. Teach us and move in us to want, to want to turn. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.